Hello and welcome to the Asia Perspectives podcast from the Economist Intelligence Unit. In each episode, we examine perspectives on industry and management to better understand how the world is changing and how those changes can create opportunities and risks to be managed. My name is Jason Winsunas. I'm a senior editor with the Economist Intelligence Unit, and I'll be your host for this episode where my colleague Naka Kondo will join me for a discussion about the environment and how businesses, investors, and government agencies in Asia are thinking about problems and how they're moving forward on them. Naka is also a senior editor at the EIU. She's based in Tokyo while I'm in Hong Kong, so we don't have a lot of opportunity to meet and discuss things over the water cooler or the coffee machine, more likely in my case. But we have been working on some projects that have common themes around climate and Asia, so we're letting you in today on some of that theoretical water cooler chat. Naka is what I would call a global citizen. She's lived in San Francisco, Tokyo, Singapore, London. Professionally, she's worked in Japan's cabinet office as well as uh, in the Japanese equities business with a U.S. investment bank. She studied at the London School of Economics and the University of Tokyo and has a BA in social psychology. On top of that, she's also a journalism graduate from the University of Tokyo and just an all-around good person to talk to. So welcome to the podcast, Naka. It's great to have a chance to speak with you today. Thank you, Jason, for the introduction. I'm very happy to be here. Now, I know one of the big things on your plate right now is your involvement with the Economist World Ocean Summit, which was meant to have happened in Tokyo. But uh, I have to confess, I don't know a whole lot about what that entails. So maybe you can tell us a little more about it. Yes. Um, so the Economist Group sits at the heart of sustainability and oceans. And in fact, not many people know this, but the World Oceans Initiative is the Economist Group's largest and truly global initiative. It was founded in 2012, so we have been involved in the sustainability space for quite some time now. Every March, in the form of the World Ocean Summit, we've brought together key stakeholders from across businesses, governments, academia, multi-bilateral organizations to discuss the future of the oceans. Then in 2019, at the G20 that was held in Osaka, the Japanese government highlighted the importance of the ocean and especially the issue of plastic debris. And also the Prime Minister Shinzo Abe had also become a member of the high-level panel for a sustainable ocean economy. And so we thought that it was a good time for us to hold the World Ocean Summit in Japan but because of COVID-19, we're now having the event in the form of a virtual week instead. And I think there are some real advantages to this because the audience is no longer limited to a single location. People can tune in from basically every part of the world and listen to high profile speakers from governments, companies, NGOs, and sessions moderated by economist editors. And now all of this is available on demand. Now, what about... Uh... The companies that get involved with this kind of program can you tell me you know you've spoken to uh, different people in that area and what are they trying to promote you know what is it that they're what's motivating them so actually not many people um think about the oceans as uh, something directly related to their businesses or you know because it's not always there and visible but even 
If you think about it, even stuff that goes on land, like farming and fertilizers, these things get out into the ocean. So these chemical fertilizers, what is that impact? How how does it impact aquaculture and all these things? So it helps people to, I guess, by thinking about the ocean and through thinking about oceans, to think about the ecosystem uh, holistically and how one is involved and is contributing uh, to that ecosystem. And I've met a few companies um, in Japan that are trying to promote a sustainable ocean economy. Two companies I found very interesting. So Japan is one of the largest uh, consumers of seafood, as everybody knows, uh, with sushi. And I visited the Tokyo Haneda market. As you know, Haneda is one of the airports in Tokyo. And what Tokyo Haneda market does is that they're actually situated right next to the runway inside the Haneda airport. And what they do is they try to provide liquidity to the fishermen that are located in remote villages, uh, remote fishing villages around all over Japan. And so these fishermen probably make less than 20,000 US dollars per year. And some part of the reasons is because they, they don't have a large population uh, to cater to. So what Haneda Market are doing is that they have created this fish market inside the airport. And every day, ANA and JAL domestic flights carry containers of fish, each containing, I guess, 500 to 700 kilograms of fish. Um, that's about 10 tons of fish a day. Um, and it keeps on coming through from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. And as you know, fish is at its highest price when it's the most fresh. So what they're doing is that they are asking the fishermen in these villages to send the fish that they caught that morning at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. And by 10 a.m., it will be at Haneda Airport delivered to these restaurants uh, and supermarkets all over Tokyo. And, you know, the fishermen are happy because they can, you know, sell their fish for a higher price than they would be able to in their own villages. And the consumers are obviously happy because they get to see 200, 250 types of fish that naturally in in Tokyo that you will not be able to see. If I were to add what's very special about the Haneda Fish Market is that every fish uh, delivered to Haneda Fish Market, you can trace it. So it's traceable. We know when it was caught, by whom. It's a fish market uh, that provide 100% traceable seafood, which is very special and and rare. And I guess if I go on to the second company that I I found to be very interesting is um, a company involved in recycling plastics. Now, plastic debris um, has been very impactful in sensitizing consumers and people to what is happening in the oceans around the world. So this is becoming a very big topic uh, in the World Ocean Summit. Uh, We've met a company called Refineverse Inc. uh, run by a person called Mr. Kashimura. And this company is a, I guess, very in technical terms, uh, polyvinyl chloride interior waste material recycling venture business. In Japan, we have over 9 million tons of plastic waste every year, of which only a few tons go into the ocean. Most of this happens as a result of typhoons and natural disasters. 
contrary to what people might think, the plastics that are floating around Japan's oceans is is not really pet bottles and you know plastic bags, but uh, that only makes up around ten percent of what we see、uh, floating around the oceans of Japan. In fact, forty percent are fishing nets、uh, that's actually made of plastic, and sometimes fishermen just lose them、uh, in while they're fishing、uh, as an accident. But sometimes they just leave them out there because it actually is costly to try to get rid of them on land. And in fact, once they actually、um, put this out to waste,、um, what happens to these plastic、uh, fishing nets is that they get incinerated, which is really not ideal. So they're not even getting、uh, recycled. Refineverse、uh, work with the fisheries to collect the fish nets,、uh, not to be incinerated. And be used as landfill, but to recycle them into reusable plastic materials. It's interesting no- to note that Aquafil, an Italian company, does something similar. And their recycled fishing nets are made into nylon and are sold to the likes of Prada and Burberry. So that gives a new meaning to the phrase、uh, "fishnet stocking," I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yes, actually. <laughs> That's very funny, but yes.、Yeah, so, so many companies are working to make sure that the ocean's economy can be run sustainably, like this. And so, I guess Refineverse、um, recycle around well, only three hundred tons of fishing nets every year right now. But in a few years, they're aiming to recycle two thousand tons annually, and also to export their know-hows and technologies abroad. Uh, to I guess fishing villages and countries that may find such technologies useful. And do you know、uh, a lot about their process? Have they talked to you about that? Is is it、uh, purely chemical? Is it mechanical? Yes, Refineverse、uh, use a material recycling, which is、uh, different to chemical recycling.、Um, so material recycling is much more environmentally. A friendly, and it can also be conducted in a small to mid scale,、uh, which is very important. And that's why refiners are looking forward to exporting this technology to many places around the world. Now, when we talk to companies like this、uh, in relation to doing an event, how are they getting involved? Are they simply sponsoring? Are they? Uh, doing things to explain how to better manage oceans, like you know, what what is the level of their involvement? I think two things. One, they come onto the platform of、uh, the World Ocean Summit to share their experience and to let people know that to aim for a sustainable ocean economy is something that's possible, and this is how to do it. Do they ever talk about the sustainable development goals, the SGDs, when they when they're talking to you about you know their motivations? In fact,、uh, the smaller companies, I guess, much less. The bigger companies,、um, much more. We hear, especially this is in Japan,、um, the SDG goals are not just a nice to have, but、uh, it's it's something that、uh, companies now have to be accountable for. And many people's、uh, mindsets have really shifted in in recent years, which is remarkable. 
Uh, when you say that they, they have to, is that something that's been government mandated? Is that something that's coming from investors? Like, How does that work? I think it's actually all around. The investors are now much more serious about being responsible to be able to uh, respond to the demands of the investors, of course. But I guess there is um, what I would call a DNA in many blue chip Japanese companies so Japanese companies, many of them have social purposes, and that actually precedes profit. And that was one of the reasons why uh, global investors uh, used to sort of be unhappy with Japanese companies, saying that, you know, businesses aren't charities and that, you know, um, it should be for profit and it should be um, for, to maximize um, shareholder value. But I guess because we have many, many Japanese companies have that to begin with, I think it resonates well that companies need to be responsible and that SDG goals and running their businesses sustainably is a social responsibility that they need to fulfill. I don't know to what extent the companies have already started acting on these goals, but many companies now all the employees need to wear the SDG badges and it's become, it's kind of getting ingrained into who they are and their corporate identity, uh, which was probably, uh, you know, unthinkable uh, uh, 10 years ago, obviously. So um... that's interesting because one of the, one of the people that I've wanted to interview and I haven't been able to, and Maybe this podcast will get his attention and he'll come talk to us. But the uh, the former CIO of uh, GPIF, which is the government uh, pension fund of Japan, which is the largest pension fund in the world, when he talks about, you know, he's actually one of the people that uh, I credit, and I think he's generally credited with really driving adoption of uh, environmental, social governance, investing. ESG in Japan, Hiro Mizuno. The way he puts it, I've, I've seen him interviewed on stage for other publications, and the way he puts it is, you know, he can't see what is the purpose of a pension fund, you know, of receiving a pension if your grandchildren can't go outside and play. I think that's the way he characterizes it. And I thought that was really remarkable. But the way you're saying it now, it sounds like Actually, that's kind of the outlook that is predominant in corporate Japan. Is, am, am I on the right track there? Yes. Yes, most definitely. Many you know, companies have philosophies written in Japanese calligraphy in, in their corporate headquarters and, and basically everywhere. And you know, those things always talk about social values and serving the people and their own communities around them. That's interesting. So it's it's a mission statement, I guess, but people actually take it seriously. Yes. Harmonizing with nature has always been, I mean, if you look at Japanese art as well, this is a predominant part of the culture. And I think, so there is less of a hurdle for people to understand what this is about. And I sincerely hope that things go in that direction from here. In my own experience living uh, on the east coast of the U.S. and the west coast, 
I feel like the fishing industries are slightly different. I mean, partly that's due to the cash crops, right? Uh, in Seattle, for example, salmon is really the big driver of the industry there. Whereas on the East Coast, it's more in uh, fish like uh, cod and lobster. You know, I grew up in Boston and we always have to have our lobsters. Uh, we used to actually have a huge oyster industry in Massachusetts way back hundreds of years ago, but we overfished it. And they've been doing archaeology and finding that, oh, wow, there's all these old oyster beds there. And they're just, you know, realizing that they maybe can revive them. But on the West Coast, I think there's a really high awareness, at least in Seattle, about the value of the fishing industry and building a sense in the entire community about what you do has an effect on the ocean. If you walk by a, a drainage you know, on the street in Seattle, they have actually embedded into the steel grating on those drainages about uh, salmon. You'll see a picture of a fish, and there's a little note there about how whatever you dump down this drain is going to the ocean, and think about whether or not that's good for the fish, which is an entirely different kind of approach, I think, than what I experienced on the East Coast. The East Coast was very much, let's go get it and get it for ourselves, whereas in Seattle, it was far more holistically thought about. In, in Japan, you know, which extreme do you see more, more often? So in Japan, there are definitely issues of overfishing. Um, the fishermen feel like if they can, they should take what they can fish um, as much as possible because it's uh, an unstable and unpredictable situation that the, um, the lives that they're leading. So there are tendencies to hoard, which is a big issue. And within Japan, there are differences. Uh, fishermen in Hokkaido uh, tend not, they're, I guess, much more like Seattle. Um, they understand the consequences and they think in the long term. But there are many pockets in Japan that uh, where fishermen don't necessarily uh, think that way. So there are many things that we need to work towards. So that really plays into this whole idea of environmental, social, and governance investing in ESG. It's about building that kind of awareness in a whole industry. Yeah. So, I mean, you've had the opportunity to, you know, get feedback from asset owners in Asia. Um, you know, you worked with many tech and financial services firms uh, since, of course, joining the EIU. And of course, you've worked with these companies before moving into media and journalism. And of course, living in many cities uh, around the US, UK, uh, and before moving to Hong Kong. So what are these asset owners in um, Asia saying about the environment and investing? So we've done two reports where we talked specifically to asset owners you know, the pension funds, the insurance funds, the sovereign wealth funds. We even got to speak with the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, which essentially acts like our central bank here in Hong Kong. You know, these are really 
giants in the financial markets. They have trillions under management. They have a lot of influence. And you can even argue with the trillions that they do invest, they can make or define markets. You know, these are just such massive amounts of money and where it goes, people are going to follow. So that's precisely why ESG investing has been growing so much in Asia. These uh, government or government-connected players, they hold public money and they have goals, similar to what you were just talking about about in Japan, but they have these goals beyond just making investment returns. They're part of the society. And financial markets are definitely one of the levers for making those goals happen. Investing is a power. And so investing on this scale is a superpower, you know, so why not turn it to good? Do you think ESG investing in Asia will actually make a difference going forward? I think it will. I mean, I think the difference is, is that there has been a significant change in awareness and in the uptake of ESG investing in general in Asia over the past, say, three to five years. Uh, Japan was actually really at the forefront of that. In one of the reports that we did, uh, I put a, found a statistic to put in there that showed that just in, I think it was 2014, the ESG investing in Japan rose something like 6,000%. And that was really all due to GPIF putting their money behind that idea. So asset owners are really motivated because they recognize that their investment decisions have real material consequence for their societies, the environment and the lives of their beneficiaries. You know, that's all so intertwined. And that's why I'm really proud that we've been able to do this series of reports, which we call actionable and sustainable. You know, if nothing else, it's a positive reinforcement. It gives all these asset owners a chance to talk about the things that are important to them, and it it gives these uh, these organizations these organizations which can be, frankly, kind of opaque. You know, they don't like to share information, but in this report, it gives everybody a chance to say, you know, here's what we're doing. It gives a chance to share with their peers and also getting on the bandwagon, and so we have a report that shows you know that this is really happening. And that is happening. And it doesn't mean that it's easy and doesn't mean that there's no challenge to it. But I think now that so many of these big funds have put their cards on the table and said, yeah, this is what we're doing, that makes it much easier for the next one and the next one to follow suit. You know, you can call it peer pressure or domino effect, but getting people to talk about it, that's really important. I think World Oceans is good for that too. And now this year, you know, you've seen... BlackRock, which is one of the biggest global asset managers in the world, they've come out talking about ESG as a priority, almost as if, hey, guys, this is something we've always been doing. Now, everybody knows that's not quite true, but it's fantastic that a company of that size is going in this way as well. You know, some people say a little too late, but I say better late than never. Yes, it sounds like the ESG investing is having an actual and real impact and that these changes are in fact accelerating, uh, which is which is what must be happening. And so this is all very hopeful. Well, I think we've run out of time, Naka. It's been great to talk to you and I hope we can do some more exploring of our reports and our research in the future. Definitely. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening. For more on EIU research, you can visit our website, perspectives.eiu.com. 
And to learn more about the World Ocean Summit and to register for free to join, go to events.economist.com and look for World Ocean Summit Virtual Week or make things easier on yourself and just have a look at the show notes for a direct link. We've also just launched a new ocean initiative, Back to Blue, that aims to provide actionable insights to promote ocean health. It was launched at the World Ocean Summit, so you can check it out at backtobueinitiative.com, and the link for that should also be in the show notes. And as always, if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work from the Economist Intelligence Unit, you can email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode.